was a moment this morning in worship where the, the team had this silence that just settled. And if you've ever been on a worship team, if you've ever been a musician, if you've ever been anywhere on a stage and you hit one of those moments in the audience, it can feel really insecure. Because often, like quite honestly, we as people, we are not comfortable with silence. In fact, we rush to fill silence so often because silence, it, it, it's unnerving, it's revealing, and it's, there's, there's anticipation of what could come or what should be coming or, or whatever it is, but we are not comfortable with silence. Uh, years and years and years ago, um, I've been counseling people for years and, and I learned the value of silence and that often when we rush to fill silence, we, we circumvent what God is trying to do in a moment in our own uncomfortability. And years ago, I was sitting with this, this guy in a 55-minute counseling session, and, and he was a guy that struggled quite a bit to, to articulate his, hot, his thoughts, his feelings, what he was going through. And I remember it was such an innocuous, simple question that I asked him at the beginning of the session. I said, hey, how are you doing today? And I remember as he sat there trying to come up with words and I just felt the Holy Spirit just say, just make space for him. Sit in the uncomfortable tension of the silence. And we sat in silence for 45 minutes. I'm gonna tell you, if you know me at all, I'm okay with awkward. I'm okay with tension. Like my whole ministry that I do outside of here is based on this principle of marrying the tension of truth and love. And I live in tension. That's like what I do. And this was so uncomfortable. The tension of the silence was so uncomfortable. I had to physically stop myself multiple times from speaking because I kept feeling this desire to fill the uncomfortable silence. And as 45 minutes passed and he got to this place where he finally just answered, I'm okay. And I said, okay, thank you. Our time is up. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you the truth, like, I thought, well, that was a massive failure. But that time of intentional silence, of patience, of waiting, transformed this man. No one had ever given him space. No one had ever been patient enough to wait in the silence with him. And so when the worship team created that moment of silence this morning, just, it was brief, but I know the uncomfortability that can rise when you wonder what's going on. Did they forget the song? What's going on? What's happening? There's this tension in silence. And we're going to enter into that today a bit. <clears throat> I have another disclaimer to give you. <laughs> That's before we start the bulk of the message, because I love the tension, and we're in tension today. For the last month or so, we've been walking through this season of lament, as many of you know, as you've been here, and 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 now we're transitioning into Advent. And I, you know, I've even had some conversations with people like, "Oh, I'm so glad we're getting out of lament." And it's interesting, you know, at the beginning of kind of this last several months, I was talking with Ryan, and he even shared it from the, the stage where I have experienced that in our culture, we have this tolerance for grief that's about 30 days. And, you know, we've been in, in this lament season for five weeks, and that has 
gone past that 30-day expiration for our comfortability with grief. And so I've been talking with people, and I've, and I've been hearing them say, like, I'm so glad we're in Advent. You know, get some hope in here. Well, <laughs> spoiler, <laughs> I'm about to disappoint you with the truth. And, you know, I'd much rather disappoint you with the truth than disappoint you with a platitude that turns out to be not true. But there's never going to be a time when we are out of a season of lament. See, that's, that's the uncomfortable truth about hope. Is that hope demands that there is not a fulfilling of that expectation quite yet. Hope rests in this desire to see God come through in a circumstance that is painful or grievous or broken. And this side of heaven, we're not going to get out of that. There's always going to be something in our lives, in our relationships, in this world that is lament-worthy. And so if you are hoping that Drew, the funny guy Drew, is going to bring the hope this morning and we're all going to laugh, and we'll, we'll be laugh because, you know, I'd laugh. But I, I, I have to tell you that hope requires that tension of lament with it. And it's okay. And not only is it okay, it's good. And not only is it good, it's purposeful and right. And so the invitation today as we talk about this first week of Advent, and Advent means arrival. And traditionally in the church calendar, the first week of Advent is the hope week. But hope is never separated from grief. It's never separated from pain. It's never separated from lament. Because hope is what gets us through that. Hope is what sustains us as we walk through the pain of those seasons. And so this morning, we're going to talk about hope. And we're not leaving behind lament. We're walking in tandem in the tension of the two. Because that's our journey, you guys. That's the journey we're on in this walk with Jesus. If you could for a moment, get out, if you have a Bible or a device that has scriptures on it, no judgment, could you please go to Malachi? The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Prepare yourselves for Malachi 4, and we'll get there in a minute. But on this topic of pain and brokenness and lament, hooray, We have to go back to the beginning. As we approach Advent and, and Christmas, we have to understand and we have to remember that the entirety of the Old Testament is filled with hundreds of prophecies that point to the coming of the Messiah. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. Theologians disagree on the exact number because you know some theologians are like, this absolutely is pointing to Jesus. And it's like, are you sure? But at least 300 prophecies are given. Some believe up to 400 prophecies in the Old Testament are pointing to the coming of Jesus. And the very first of these prophecies was given within the first couple chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis, immediately after sin entered the world and shattered God's heart and intention for his people. He never intended us to experience pain. He never intended for us to experience death. He never intended for us to experience sin and all the consequences that come with it. And the moment that we did, the moment that humanity went sideways and chose sin was the exact moment that God began 
and gave the first of hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of promises that he would make it right. And we see this in the first couple chapters of Genesis where he says of the offspring of woman would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would strike at the heel. And this was the first utterance making God's redemptive plan known that no matter what we have done or what has been done or what will be done to try to derail God's purposes and plans, God is always moving and he's always promising redemption. From the second sin entered, he promised redemption. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies given throughout the Old Testament as they are waiting and waiting for this Messiah. And as we get to Malachi, if, you, if you're there now, Malachi 4, it says this. But for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, remember the, low, the law of my servant Moses and the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. What a cheerful prophecy to end the, the, the writings of the Old Testament. These words are uttered by the prophet Malachi to a nation struggling to remain faithful to the God they love. If you know this, the history of Israel, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, whatever name you want to put on it, you know that they constantly had this relationship with God where it was like one step forward, 85 steps back. Anyone relate to that? And in the midst of all this, here's this last of hundreds of promises given in the Old Testament. Literally in the last few words written in the Old Testament, here's this promise. And then silence for 400 years. Four hundred years. Theologians have different ways of describing this. Some call it the four hundred years of silence, which is a little on the nose, if you ask me. Others call this the intertestamental period, where if you look and you read the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New, you see this this gap. That's like Old Testament ends, New Testament begins. Four hundred years are passed, and the world of the New Testament is vastly different than the world of the Old Testament. In fact, there's so many different groups and people that, are, that have no mention and no context to understand in the Old Testament because they've completely sprung up in this 400-year period. In this 400 years of silence where no prophetic word was uttered, nothing new was given to the people. And in the midst of this 400 years, you have this incredible season of pain and brokenness and destruction. So brace yourselves because now is Biblical History Lesson 101 with Drew. Settle in. I'm going to make clear 400 years. But before I do that, I want to say a few things about the nature of God in this because lest we misinterpret God's heart, God is always laying out bread, more than breadcrumbs. 
He's laying out signposts and a roadmap for his people that when this 400 years comes, there should be no mystery as to what God is doing. You see, God is a God that is unchanging. He doesn't change his nature, his character. It's, it's, it's forever who he is. As part of the attributes of God that I love the best is that I can rely on him because he doesn't change. And this isn't the first time that God has done a 400-year period where it like, seems like there's nothing going on. If we remember back in one of the prophecies given to God's people, to Abraham, when he says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation, which, and I'm going to bless the world through you, which is essentially yet another promise of the Messiah coming through this line of people. He says, this is going to happen. It's going to be great. By the way, first, 400 years are going to happen where you're going to be in slavery in a foreign land. And when you read the story, the narrative of the scripture, you get to that moment where Joseph has rescued his family out of the famine and they're in Egypt and Joseph is like second in command in all of Egypt and everything looks great. And then you have these few bylines of scripture that says, but then there are pharaohs that rose up that neither cared nor liked nor wanted anything to do with Joseph, true translation of the Bible, forgot who they were and oppressed the people. And so for 400 years, the Jewish people sat in slavery in Egypt and then the next part of the scripture is Moses. And in that 400-year period, we can only assume, and only, because there's nothing written, it's just 400 years, and then comes Moses, and we have that story. See, it's not unlike God to do something like this, where there's a, a break in the story, but God has already told you, this is going to happen. Spoiler, going to happen. Don't be surprised. And then it happens, and it moves forward. Well, part of the prophecies and part of the things that happened in the Old Testament that let the people know this was basically what was going to happen was uh, you can find in the prophecies or the rather the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 2. And Daniel interpreted this dream for the king. And if you read it, I'm not going to go into a ton of it in the interest of time, but the, the king Nebuchadnezzar has this vision in a dream of the statue and it's got like a gold head and a silver chest and like a, you know, a bronze nether region and then iron legs and an iron clay feet and all this. And he interprets this as different kingdoms that are going to come and fall one after the other. And we know from the book of Daniel that that first part, that golden head was the Babylonian kingdom. And this was a kingdom that brought the Israelites into captivity and they were in captivity when this vision was happening. And then they, you know, left that Babylonian, but then came the next kingdom and the next kingdom was going to be the the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. If you want to know what that was like for the Jews, you can read the book of Esther because that was the Medo-Persian Empire. And you can read the stories there and what happened with Esther and Mordecai and, and Haman and all this nonsense and, and tragedy and, and drama that happened in the unfolding of God's people in this season. And it's beautiful. But then Esther just kind of happens right before Malachi is given. And then we have this season where there's not really biblical scriptural history given, but we know world history and we know that stuff happened. And, and what happened in the midst of that is what we're going to talk about right now in that 400 years of silence. See, shortly after Malachi gave this word, the Greek culture, the Greek kingdom, the empire rose up. How many of you ever heard of Alexander the Great? Oh, man, read a history book, some of y'all. What? Lord, and I think there's even a Netflix documentary somewhere. Like, educate yourself. 
Alexander the Great was a conqueror, and basically he, in the, he was Macedonian, but he was ruler of the Greek Empire, and he set out to conquer the known world, and that's essentially what he did. He conquered all of the world in the, around the Mediterranean, and, you know, Alexander the Great was a fearsome you know, powerful leader, and he conquered. And one of the things that he wanted to do is he wanted to spread the culture of the Greeks to the known world. And so he did this, and he established, um, for the first time since probably before the Tower of Babel, a singular language within the region. See, it was in this time that he spread the Greek language. Koine Greek began known all across the region, and it was the commerce language. It was the common tongue and so the Hebrews and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the, the Macedonians and all these people, they all knew Koine Greek. And so this was happening in the midst of this time. And when Alexander the Great did this, he also had, you know, thirst for knowledge. And so he commissioned a lot of things to happen that were bringing the Hellenistic culture of the Greeks to the region. Because the Greeks were huge on learning and huge on philosophy and huge on writing and huge on all these things. And that was new for a lot of these cultures. But if you know history at all, you know that Alexander the Great might have been Alexander the Great, but he wasn't Alexander the Long. He died real young. He died at 32 years old with no heirs, no, no children, no one to hand the kingdom to. So as he's on his deathbed, his four generals who were with him, the four in command, they're asking like, well, who's going to take over? And he's like, whoever's strongest, and he's dead. And it's like... That's super helpful, Alex, thanks. So what ended up happening in the course of this history is that these four generals decided to divide up his, his kingdom, this empire, the Greek empire. And this is important because there were two of those generals that had their positions on either side of what would be the land, the Holy Land, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, Judea, however you want to call it. And for the first time, the first sort of, era in this 400 years of silence after Alexander the Great died, the Ptolemies, who were centered in Egypt, their kingdom was centered in Egypt, they were the ones that ruled over the biblical land for the first 120 years. And the Ptolemies were, for the most part, pretty agreeable to the Jewish people. They they allowed them to continue to worship in their temple. They allowed them to continue to practice their religion and their faith. They were relatively kind. But they were also bringing in the Hellenistic culture to the Jews, which we talked about, like the, the philosophy and the enlightenment and their desire for literature and writings. And, and if you know anything about um, the, the Egyptian side of this kingdom, have you ever heard of the Library of Alexandria? You see, the Ptolemy Kingdom was capital in Alexandria, Egypt. And so there was this Library of, of Alexandria where they collected writings from all over the world to collect knowledge because the Greeks were huge on knowledge. And in the process of this, one of the things that was commissioned was to take the Hebrew writings in the Hebrew language and translate them into Koine Greek. And this was known as the Septuagint. In fact, today, most of the Bibles that we use today are translated in the Old Testament from the Septuagint, from that Greek translation of the Bible, to give us our translations today. And so even though the, the kingdom of Israel in this 400-year period, they're experiencing these kingdoms ruling over them, God is always working. Here's something that we need to understand about God. In the midst of darkness and silence, and pain, God is never passive. God is always active. God is intentional. 
and he is moving the chess pieces even if we can't see. So here this Ptolemy empire, the Ptolemies, are, are creating this opportunity for the Hebrews to, to really delve into knowledge and to grow in their appreciation of teaching and learning and the written word and the written scriptures. In fact, it's in this time period that synagogues begin to grow up in the Jewish community because before that, really there wasn't much emphasis or, or value placed in the common folk coming to learn. They were just waiting for the prophet or the king to tell them what to do or the judge or whoever. And you can see it all in the Old Testament, how they had this reliance on these people to be the mouthpieces for God. But when the Greeks came in and brought in this thirst for knowledge, then it was like, oh, well, we can learn too. So these teachers started to rise up and the synagogues started to rise up and people started learning the word and learning their faith. And in one respect, some of the Jewish faith began to flourish under this because they were growing and they were learning. But often what comes with, you know, more enlightened culture is this kind of division between the two. There's always this polarization and we can see it throughout world history, not just in biblical history, but we can see it in world history. We can see it in contemporary culture. And what begins to happen is there begins to be this split and this divide on extremes. So you have the, the more traditionalist, faithful Jews that were pressing into knowing and learning the word of God and the Torah and, and conforming their lives to it. And then there were these other set of Jews that really began embracing the Hellenistic culture of the Greeks and started mixing in a lot, not just learning and education and philosophy from the Greek culture, but their religion as well. And they began polluting their faith and their, their religion with the thinking of the world, so to speak. Gosh, does this happen today? Uh-huh. And so there was this, this division that began to start happening within even the people of God and this tension rising between like this more, what we might, you know, call liberal. Oh, I'm going to use better terms. I'm going to use better terms. Because we can see this reality playing sometimes out in the church today. And it's something that I deal with all the time where, where let's talk about it in terms of like truth and love. Okay not actual truth and love because there is no truth without love and there is no love without truth, but truth and love. Truth would be like traditionalist. Love might be like squishy, <laughs> more emotive and more feelings. You know, it might be, you, you might see that happening. So this division began happening and the tension in between the two. And somewhere in this season where all this is happening, where the 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 Hebrew scriptures are being translated into Greek, where the world is, is really being connected by a single language, where education and philosophy is happening and the rise of this, this culture is happening. The Ptolemies lose their control over Israel. And the general, the, the, the kingdom, the, the general that was in Syria before that had risen up then took control. And these were the Seleucides, and they weren't good. Whereas the Ptolemies were a culture that allowed the practice of the Jewish faith. The Seleucids, they hated the Jewish faith. And they did absolutely everything they could to destroy, to outlaw, to squash, to pollute the Jewish faith. In fact, the, the, the leader that rose up in this time period, his name was Antitius Epiphanes which means illustrious one or God incarnate. 
you know, as if Alexander the Great wasn't enough. You have the great and now the God-man. You know, it's a little bit of a narcissistic guy. But he took over and he had such a hatred for God's people that he slaughtered over 40,000 Jews. He outlawed circumcision, which was so incredibly important to the Jewish men as a, as a sign of devotion to their God. He did burned the Hebrew scriptures started tearing down the synagogues and then in an act of complete and utter narcissism and tyranny and and no other way to put it but demonic influence he walked himself into the temple in Jerusalem built an altar for Zeus and then in the holy of holies sacrificed a pig to Zeus now if you know anything about Jewish custom and culture Pigs were considered unclean animals. And so they're like to bring that at all into the Holy of Holies, to then set up an altar to a false God is bad enough. But then to spill the blood of the unclean in the holiest place in all of Judaism just was a bridge too far for these guys. They were like, okay, now you've done it. And so we see in this time where this persecution is happening, then rises up in it a man named um, Judas Maccabeus. And if you know anything, again, about Jewish history, this is the Maccabean revolts, where these faithful, God-loving men literally said, enough is enough. We will take back our temple. We will take back our nation we will fight for the God most high. And they did just that. And in the process of doing this, Maccabeus and his, his sons and those that he gathered, they, they cleared the temple. And in the process of this battle, they, they purged the temple of the idolatry. They cleansed it and they lit the menorah, the lampstand in the temple. And they did not have enough oil to keep it lit. And yet, miraculously, the menorah stayed lit for days upon days, eight days. Which is when we now see this contemporary Jewish celebration of Hanukkah the celebration of light. Can you imagine, if you will, if you're a Jew in that time period where God has stopped speaking and you're in this 400 years of silence where no new prophetic utterance has been given, where it can feel like God has abandoned you, where you've been conquered and your nation is being divided and then, and then you are conquered again by someone who seems hell-bent to kill, destroy, and rob you of any hope you have left. And yet no word from God has been spoken, no angelic visitation, nothing new. And then you have this moment, you clear the temple, you know there's not enough oil for the lamp. And yet God miraculously sustains it and the light pierces the darkness. And just a shred of hope begins to settle in the hearts of these Jews that maybe, just maybe, God has not abandoned us. Maybe, just maybe, he's still with us. No words were spoken, but something happened. Light shone in the darkness. As the Maccabees began to rule, then, of course, what always happens is, as we see today, because there is nothing new under the sun, when you mix politics and religion, it does not work well sometimes, ever. And... As they're taking over authority, then what happens is this division between what we were talking about of truth and love or, or conservative or liberal, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to cause any fights here this morning, but this division within the kingdom begins happening. And then we see these groups starting to rise up that we did not see in the Old Testament. We see the Pharisees rising and the Sadducees rising. 
And the Pharisees and the Sadducees represented these two halves. The Pharisees would be on the truth scale. They were like, listen, Linda, we've got to get our law back in here and we've got to get these rules back in here because if we follow the law, then maybe the Messiah will come. And so they followed every rule and then they made up more because, you know, more is always better, right? Again, not to disillusion you with truth, but more is not always better. One Christmas cookie is good. 25 is type 2 diabetes, like coming at you hard. More is not always better. But the Pharisees, they had this zeal for the, the law of God. And in their efforts to try to make something happen, this is the extreme they went to. Now, the Sadducees, they were like, well, we like Moses, but we don't like any of the prophets. We don't believe in the supernatural. We don't believe in eternal life. They were just like, meh. We do like power, though. So we want power and we want influence, but we don't have any hope. But they were just kind of squishy. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these two factions are rising up. And in the midst of this division that's happening, because a kingdom divided against itself will never stand, in comes the Roman Empire. And once again, occupies and overthrows the rule, the self-autonomous rule of Israel. And once again, they're under occupation of a pagan nation, and God is still silent. And then right around, you know, the time that we know of the birth of Jesus, I'm just going to jump a little in the timeline, but I'm going to go back in a minute. Rome sets this, this census up, which we know is part of why Joseph had to take Mary back to Bethlehem. And because of that, then a group, another group rose up called the Zealots. And they were like Maccabees 2.0. And they're like, we got to fight. And, and, and all of this is just pointing back to this simple reality that sometimes in our humanity, in the silence, we want to fill the silence. We are uncomfortable with silence. And sometimes in the silence of God in our lives, if God is silent or we don't see him moving, I know I've done this and I think that I'm among friends. We try to start doing things to make God move. Or maybe we have something in our lives where God promised us something would happen and we think, well, it's not happening this way. I know I'm going to make it happen this way. I think that is where missionary dating began. I'm going to have a family someday and it's not happening. Well, there's a really unsafe person. I know I will lead them to Jesus and they will be my... Uh, it's not a good idea. Trying to fill silence is never a good idea. But they were filling the silence. They were trying to fill the silence. And I, I'm, there's no criticism from me we all do it. But it relies, or rather it, it gets its fuel from this place of not recognizing that God works in the dark. God works in the silence. He works in the pain. He works in impossible circumstances. Y'all, it's his favorite. In the midst of this, in this time period where the division is happening, where the Pharisees are doing this and the Sadducees are doing this and the Zealots are rising up and Rome is appointing leaders that have no care for the Jewish people, just for power, the silence gets broken. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. 
One of the benefits of the Roman Empire was they were once again allowing the Jews to worship. And so worship in the temple had resumed. The priesthood had resumed. But have you ever come into church in a season of your life where you're just not expectant? Where you come and you sing the songs and you listen to the sermon, you might read your Bible, and you just don't expect God to do something. But you're doing it because it's what you know to do. You're kind of resolved to the life that you have and the motions that you're going through. But you're not expectant for God to show up. I can imagine after 400 years of silence and occupation and tragedy and pain, this might be where where they are. And by chance, chance, we have this story unfold. Luke 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, to offer the incense offering. You'd go into the holy place, you'd light the incense, doing what we know to do. No expectancy. No faith that God is going to show up or speak. It's just what we need to do. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And again, I don't know how many times, maybe they were doing it out of obligation. Maybe there was some hope. Maybe there was a tiny bit of hope. But my, my thought, knowing humanity, knowing myself, knowing church people, sometimes we get into that spot of just no expectancy. We're just doing what we know to do. And I might cry when I read the rest of this. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. I don't blame him. You always find it ironic that they always say, do not fear. Bull crap. I mean, <laughs> okay. <sighs> Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Don't let it be lost on you that the angel Gabriel spoke the very words of Malachi back to Zechariah. 400 years of silence doesn't mean the sentence was over. 
It just means that the comma took a really long time. I love that he uses the words of Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, the last prophetic words after 400 years of silence to speak to this aged, crusty old priest who had probably lost all hope of a child or a son and a wife, Elizabeth, who also aged probably past childbearing years. And she's now pregnant with John the Baptist who carries with him the spirit of Elijah, which is exactly what the word said would happen. And like any of us would, Zachariah didn't believe it. He was like, no, say what? You crazy angel Gabriel, who, who you? And so because of this, I find this to be one of the most powerful things in this story is that God breaks the silence of 400 years just to silence the one person who's been given the message. He mutes this man. And as he comes out of the temple and all those who have been worshiping, probably expecting nothing to happen, they see this priest come out with no ability to speak and they know he's been visited. And there's no understanding of what's coming. But a single light starts piercing the darkness. And the only people who really know this is happening are this old priest, his wife who's now pregnant, and her 14-year-old cousin in a little town called Nazareth, who the same angel comes and announces to this virgin that she will bear the Messiah. And Gabriel ends his time with Mary by saying this, for no word from God will ever fail. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about this that strikes so powerfully to me. Maybe it's the season, maybe it's the beautiful, mournful, minor key worship, Kate, songs that we sing at Christmas. One of my personal favorites is O Holy Night, and as I was preparing this message, the line, long lay the world in sin and error pining, hit something deep in me. Because it's where we've been. It's where they were. But then the line that follows it up shortly is, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. The thrill of hope landed on Zachariah, on Elizabeth, on Mary, and then on Joseph. And they knew this secret that little by little we see that's coming out. And of course, it, it, it reveals that God has been at work the whole time. It reveals that God has been purposing everything in the midst of the 400 years of silence. God wasn't passive. He was moving. Let's think about the history here. Jesus entered a world that was radically different than, than what Malachi spoke to. And how was it radically different? Number one, the Jewish people didn't care about learning before or teachers. He entered into a world where they now were built for this synagogue rabbinical system where they would go and they would learn and they would have someone open up the word of God for them. And Jesus came as a teacher. He came as a teacher. 
In fact, I didn't say this in first service, but I'll share it now. In the scriptures, the first, like, several generations from, from, from Adam to Noah, their names, you all know the Hebrew names have meaning, right? Each one, each generation from Adam to Noah, they have this, and I won't even say that because I can't remember all their names, but I know what their names mean. Their names translated in succession in chronological order mean this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God will come down teaching. His presence will bring us, will bring the despairing comfort and rest. That is each name telling us what Jesus is going to do. And God set the chessboard for a time where Jesus would enter a world where teaching and synagogue was the norm. He entered a world where one language was known across the entire civilized world, which meant that when Paul and Peter and Stephen and every apostle and every missionary traveled, they would go into a place where they would speak a language where they could hear and they would know. He entered a world where the scriptures of the Old Testament, along with the hundreds of prophecies of who Jesus was, would be able to be read by the entire known world. Don't tell me God doesn't work in the dark. Don't tell me that God is not still moving in the silence. This is the world Jesus stepped into. This is the world he was born into, a world that in what could have been translated as God abandoning us, God was moving and working to bring the greatest redemption we would ever know. It's to that world that Jesus was born. And it's to us today, in the midst of the darkness and the silence and the pain, whatever it is in your own personal context, and I know there is pain in this room, can I say to you, God is not passive. He is moving every minute of every day. He is moving. He will make his redemptive purposes come to bear. Not a word from the Lord will ever fail. Today, I invite all of us in this community to allow the thrill of hope to permeate the darkness and the silence that we might be walking through because Jesus has come. Amen? God bless you all. Look forward to seeing you next week.